Welcome to the virtual EU community. I'm Andreas Marazis. And I'm Rashid Gabdulhakov. Together, we will keep you company through a monthly chat in the EU with a conversation on Europe Central Asia developments. What events are unfolding in Central Asia that Europeans should understand? But also, what developments in Europe are of specific relevance to Central Asia? Together, we discuss social trends, political developments, and economic turns while assessing the past and looking ahead to what the future may unfold. I would like to mention at this point that A Chat in the Yurt is a podcast from the EUCAM program of the Center for European Security Studies in the Netherlands. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and sign up to EUCAM News on our website. Now, today's first podcast is dedicated to modern-day Central Asia, including challenges, aspirations, and everyday life in the region. The political realities on the ground are more or less known to those who focus on Central Asia. However, what is less known or understood is the reality of everyday people. What are the lived experiences of people in the region? What are people's concerns nowadays? What troubles youth and women in the region? Another topic uh, for discussion is about Central Asian studies and if it's time to rethink them and have a different approach. Today, in our cozy yurt, we have Dr. Irna Hoffman, a research associate at the Faculty of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Oxford. We also have Nusha Noziri, gender expert working on women, peace, and security with international organizations. She is an alumna of UCAM Fellowship and Chevening Scholarship on Gender and International Relations. We also have Sivara Hamidova, a specialist on fundraising at the International Debate Education Association, IDEA. Uh, it's based in Bishkek, and she is also a former EUCAM fellow. Sivara, Irna, Nusha, a warm welcome to our yurt. Hello. Thank you so much. Well, it seems that we have connections uh, uh, in uh, the Netherlands, where uh, Irna and Rashid are based. Sevara is uh, currently in Bishkek, and of course, Nusha is based in uh, Dushanbe. So it's uh, quite diverse in terms of geographic locations, uh, first uh, EUCAM podcast. So maybe we can start uh, our uh, cozy discussion by addressing uh, you first, uh, uh, Irna, and asking you to tell us or to give us a little bit of an introduction about uh, the status quo in Central Asia and more specifically, some of the major concerns in the region uh, this period. And of course, this is a question which can be also answered uh, uh, by Sevara and Nusa. This is an open discussion. Feel free to jump in at any moment. Um, well, recent developments, uh, I think Central Asia, I mean, we, sh- I mean we, we, we speak of a region, right? But there are several, uh, I mean, as well as five countries and dynamics in the, the different countries are um, specific. Um, if we look at, uh, let's say, past five years, um, well, she, we see continuity and change, you can say. I mean, uh, particularly, of course, COVID has had an enormous impact on the region and uh, due to migration and historical legacies, uh, societies in the region are strongly tied or dependent on Russia. So what happens there um, in a way um, reverberates in Central Asia at large in various parts. So um, those are two things or two uh, developments or uh, issues you could say that um, affect uh, people in, in Central Asia in different ways. Um, and of course, COVID 
um, well, was a pandemic that um, had a great impact throughout the world um, and in, in Central Asia in various ways, directly and indirectly. Um, and what you see now is that the war in Ukraine actually comes on top of that and um, initially perhaps had an indirect impact in Central Asia in terms of increasing prices, inflation and uh, impact on migrants. And now with the mobilization um, actually exacerbates that impact in, in diverse ways. I mean, um, those are a few of the current um, tendencies or dynamics that, that make life in Central Asia, in rural and in urban areas, um harder or um worse so to say than it than it used to be and actually also deepens social economic inequality which was already a major concern um and it's it's hard to generalize if we talk about people for instance who depend primarily on remittances from russia or people mm. who don't uh, but in a way i think um Life in Central Asia has always been quite tough for many people, and recent dynamics actually have really worsened that. Um, of course, every uh, every cluster that Irina has uh, outlined here can be unpacked further in, in in several hours of podcast. But just to jump onto this idea of of migration and what we have seen recently, a reversal in migration with people running actually away from Russia, finding refuge in Central Asia to escape mobilization. Um, maybe Nusha and Sivara can elaborate on that. How is that felt on the ground in Tajikistan, in Uzbekistan, in Kyrgyzstan? Uh, I can definitely uh, jump in in, uh, in addressing this uh, question and perhaps a political and economic concern. Uh, indeed, after the announcement of the forced mobilization, um, there was an influx of Russian migrants to Tajikistan specifically. It was very visible on the streets of Rodaki, uh, packed with men wearing shorts and tattoos, uh, a, a, a sight that you don't often see in Dushanbe, of course. Uh, obviously, economically, it has some benefits to Tajik hospitality business because after COVID, there is an increase of flights. The hotels were all booked all the restaurants are packed with um, uh, Russian families and uh, Rus Ru Russian migrants. Uh, essentially, it is good for the economy, but I, I assume this is a, a short-term um, impact of the mobilization. Obviously, uh, after some, some time, a lot, of the, a lot of the migrants left Tajikistan to either go to Istanbul or through Tashkent, go to uh, another destination or perhaps even go to Tashkent. I think in the wake of a mobilization, whatever tickets were available were purchased in one of those destinations was Dushanbe. Um, in regards to effects on everyday life, other than the visibility of, of, um, of seeing um, a lot of um, Russian migrants, I have uh, been um, from one side pleasantly surprised and from the other side unpleasantly surprised because the Tajik community really mobilized itself in helping these um, 
relocators, as they call, um, by providing them insights on how to register, how to, with the Ministry of Internal Affairs, where to find best places in a, with stable internet and so on and so forth. And from one point of view, it is really good that the Tajik hospitality has come to be proven in this case. From the other side, I felt really disappointed that this kind of treatment wasn't provided for Afghan refugees, which were fleeing the Taliban regime in 2021. And um, they are much more uh, vulnerable and fragile in terms of economic situation. So I wish this, this, this treatment was also acceded to other uh, neighbors um, that are fleeing um, a very sensitive uh, political situation back home. And of course, as a gender person, I cannot not mention gender. <laughs> um, obviously, and Irna touched upon this uh, herself, that um, labor migration is high, high very much tied with Russian economy and Russia is a home for many labor migrants from across Central Asia, perhaps Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan and maybe Uzbekistan more so than the other countries. Um, but with labor migration, perhaps taking a toll now, um, it, it, it will take an effect uh, back at home because 90% of labor migrants are men. And when men come back, and if they come back and there is no income, how will that affect into family dynamics, into economics, into gender relations between a family and whether toxic masculinities will be more so violent because there will be uh, no main breadwinner in the family and will that affect uh, the, the rights of women in the family and whether domestic violence will be exacerbated because of this. So a lot of things that are interplaying with each other, but Central Asia, Central Asians are not a homogeneous group. They have certain Absolutely. peculiarities and, and we cannot compare mm -hmm. Kazakhstan to Tajikistan. It's a very rich country which has large, large play, but regardless, it is, uh, uh, I think, in general, in, in answering your question in the beginning, what is the status quo in Central Asia now? I think times are times are unpredictable because we are so largely reliant on the situation in, in Russia and Russia is being unpredictable. So uh, in short or in long, this is my <laughs> answer to your question. Thank you. May just add, and of course, I will ask you, Sevar, as well, to share your thoughts and views from uh, uh, Kyrgyzstan. And if you have any views on Uzbekistan, are, you are more than welcome to share them with us. I wanted to follow on what uh, uh, Nusa and Irna mentioned, that we are living in interesting times. And in Central Asia, we described a little bit the situation in, uh, in the capitals uh, uh, with the influx of Russians, uh, uh, how this has affected the life of people in rural areas because we're often uh, encounter the situation in uh, big cities we have unrest and so on but what is the situation in the regions what is the situation in uh, rural areas and how the uh, the the livelihood of uh, rural people has been affected and what are basically their thoughts and views on what's going on in russia and how it affects them on in terms of like making ends meet in the end of the day so I would like to hear your views, Sevar, and of course, Irna, Nusa, Rashid, feel free to, to comment as well. Well, what I noticed uh, in Uzbekistan and in Kyrgyzstan, as I'm going back like to, to Uzbekistan every two weeks, so I'm basically uh, in context in both countries, uh, more or less, uh, but uh, it's a uh, huge frustration, I guess. This mm. is like what is uh, common like in both countries because people don't know like what's going to happen tomorrow. 
what's going to happen next year. And uh, even, I guess, it's not because of the influx of uh, the relicants, uh to both countries, but uh, it's more about, uh, like in Kyrgyzstan, it's more about the recent uh, conflict uh, on the Tajik border, you know, and uh, more like internal uh issues with the government you know and the arrest of the um uh, prominent activists uh here so it just uh kyrgyzstan is more like busy with um with internal issues and uh in uzbekistan i think like uh like um, people also busy with their lives so they trying to find new opportunities because they see that uh um uh, they cannot go to russia like uh, like many of them are coming back uh homes and still trying to find new opportunities going uh, to turkey or to arab states uh, as well um just trying to find the new destinations i guess for migration um if we kind of talk about the war i think like people don't talk much about the politics like in uzbekistan uh, of course in kyrgyzstan it's like completely different situation uh here the civil society is more speaking about the narratives about the decolonization uh like anti um imperialistic views let's say so they're trying to find the new kind of like uh, uh trends and visions like how to oppose this decolonization because uh the the, uh, the society afraid of uh being kind of like um colonized again by russia of course and uh that's why i guess it's like more, uh it's more um about this cause like uh, what i see like uh, in terms of like c civil society so this is what they discuss more or less uh and uh in uzbekistan it's still frustration because nobody knows uh what will be like the politics and what will be the what what will government say about um uh, the war and like what will be the position of uzbekistan as we still stay neutral and with uh, the media trying to report a lot about uh, the war, but from both sides trying to stay kind of neutral. Uh, so we see reports like about Ukraine uh, and um, they are, uh, the quality of the reports are getting better, mm -hmm. uh, as, as I see, because like there are no like Russian propaganda. Uh, so there is no positions like and, uh, the Uzbekistan is just trying to kind of st stand for this kind of neutral position. And to search new in, uh, investments, also see uh, what Turkey says about that. So just following, you know, Turkey, um, other partners that are important for uh, Uzbekistan's development and especially for economy. The, the media messages, of course, are mixed. I'm not in the field on the ground, but I'm monitoring the media. And uh, what I have been noticing is all these, <laughs> to start with, with the rural uh, people go to to urban centers to study, to work, and usually they rent apartments, of course, and they have faced challenges because they have been kicked out basically overnight by their landlords saying, here are uh, Russian expats willing to pay threefold your rent. So please, you know, either pay $600 instead of 200 or we will evict you because uh, there is at the threshold, at the door, there are people willing to pay that much and live in this apartment. That has definitely been an impact causing uh, uncertainty and instability and the uh, real estate prices have doubled, which, which is an insane pressure on top of the lost jobs, uh, on top of the uh, you know, <laughs> fears of going to Russia for, for work. 
Uh, and as far as media, further media messages coming from the state are concerned, Uzbekistan, for instance, is continuously reminding the citizens that fighting in foreign wars will have consequences upon returning home, you know, imprisonment of up to 15 years. Um, but at the same time, people are vulnerable on the ground in Russia as we see them being just swiped up at the entry to metro in Moscow and finding themselves at the front, uh, basically being foreign combatants. Not definitely like uh, link it, like not exactly linking it, like was like, for instance, if the landlord is like uh, making uh, prices uh, higher like for rent, uh, they don't link it with the relicants. Or like when you talk uh, about that, like asking like, so what do you feel about that? So they don't say anything negative, let's say, uh, about the relicants or like they don't link it with the influx of uh, relicants. They just saying, yeah, like, you know, why they, they just like fight against the landlords. So it's just not um, uh, like at least like with people that I was talking and just what I see in social media that like everybody just so frustrated that just asking questions, like just start asking questions slowly, like why the price is changing? Why uh, do we need to pay more? Why we get kicked out? But uh, not really kind of, you know, touching like... Um, sharp angles let's say oh, of course that. everyone has their own bubble on social media but to touch upon that you, you've mentioned some of the anti-colonial sentiments and i have noticing these because a, a lot of people are now feeling that they can finally have the revenge on russia you know because there was so much discrimination for decades right against central asia yeah. central asians were viewed as as backward as uh, people who are coming and invading and stealing jobs and now russians the colonial power find themselves you know seeking re refuge in central asia and i have seen quite a bit of um, uh, narratives of resentment to that so i would say there is also quite granulated there are people who embrace and view it as an economic opportunity there are people who resent there are people who are afraid uh, of uh, the return of the ussr or that the putin will come to save ethnic russians in in central asia well, what I've noticed is that there has been like a development in recent months because when the with the Russian invasion initially I was in touch with people in in rural Tajikistan as well as some migrants in Russia and there was really panic here in in Europe right I mean you could hardly escape news but in 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 those those weeks basically I encountered a I mean of course it has to had to do with people's access to information and and communication and there was a a different perception and I, my impression is that that is is has changed over over the course of time um but more and and of course it has also to do with a well the digital divide basically but what i noticed um in in rural areas with the people i've been in touch with in recent times is that it continues to be a matter of making ends meet, right? And it was also the situation during COVID. So people experience higher input prices. If you talk about agriculture, for instance, inflation more in general. Mm -hmm. And so um, we can make a lot of political statements here, but it's it's also a matter of survival, right? And and so that's really, I was talking with someone in Tadikistan recently, and he was just saying, well, we do this, we do that. Cotton prices are like this this year. Well, this is life. That's what he's he 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 expressed. So you can follow the news day and night, but um, there's there's also uh, I mean survival. That's that's most most important. Um, so I think that's that's really one um, 
issue that has basically affected um, rural livelihoods. And it's important to mention that migration, and that's, I mean, what we mentioned, it's the backbone of the economy and its remittances are um, a safety net for people working in agriculture. So for instance, for failing harvest or to start agricultural season. And so in, in that regard, recent years have had a, an impact on agriculture as well. And if I, if, if I may uh, jump yes, into what Irna already uh, said, uh, I think looking at the short-term um, effects of the current political climate in Tajikistan specifically and in rural areas specifically, it's positive because the ruble has strengthened. Uh, there is a high um, demand for low-skilled labor migrants who work in construction largely in the occupied territories in Ukraine to do renovation and reconstruction and so on and so forth. We've been receiving some reports that there's a lot of labor migrants working in those territories doing exactly that kind of job. And, you know, this kind of um, Th this uh, type of um, employment is largely uh, dominated by Central Asian uh, migrants. Uh, however, long term and even now, I mean, obviously it is uh, inflation is seen left and right in all of Central Asia. In Tajikistan specifically, I mean, the prices went up so much, uh, including, you know, food, uh, oil, but also medications, which are imported all from Russia. And uh, uh, I mean, if, if, if I'm a person who lives in Dushanbe and I go to the pharmacy and if I, and, uh, a medication that I was buying used to cost 100 samon, which is basically $10 now, cost now 150 samon, $115, so this 50% increase. And when I ask what's the reason for this price increase, they say it's because it's imported from Russia and the dollar and the ruble playing around and instability, it affects the prices to that extent. And I'm I mean, if the price uh, increase was, you know, a couple of uh, couple of cents, you wouldn't pay much attention. But it's a fifty percent increase in everything, absolutely everything. I think um, that impacts the lives of people, and specifically in rural areas as well. Uh, so all in all, I think we're seeing inflation. Uh, I mean, it, globally, uh, I, I think it's safe to say, but also in Central Asia um, as well. Since Central Asia is a quite uh, uh, is a region full of yeah, young people, I wanted to draw everyone's attention on like uh, the major concerns or maybe what the impact uh, uh, that the situation uh, in the region has on uh, uh, youth and also in vulnerable communities like women. So I wanted to understand a little bit and also help our audience understand what are the major concerns? What do young people, women discuss with each other? What, what troubles them the most? Is it uh, uh, employability? Is it education? Uh, what? Financial issues? Migration? Just let's, let's uh, draw uh, our attention to specific topics that concern young people and women. I think future opportunities in general, what you mentioned actually is employment and education are really big issues. Um, and so, um, and of course, I mean, like, Speaking about Tajikistan, it's often parents who have a big role, right, in 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 um, in, in also deciding what uh, pupils do after leaving school, whether they go to Russia or trying to invest and uh, look for opportunities at universities within Tajikistan or even abroad. But I so they, those are um, issues definitely of concern. 
Um, and I find it very hard to generalize about women. I mean, most of the women and young, young, young girls I've in interacted with uh, living in the rural areas, and many of them are in a different position uh, compared to women in, or young girls or girls in, in urban areas. So um, they don't often finalize or um, school and uh, work in the fields and don't really have uh, equal access to education. Um, so that's, that's really hard to generalize. Um, but um, I think we, we can say more in general that future opportunities uh, in, in any regard actually play a big role. One issue that I think is, is in a way positive to highlight is, um, is, and we didn't really mention that before, but that could, I could have said it in the intro as well, or in the earlier uh, um, things I've said is that, um, access to digital technology, I mean, even though there is inequality, but that really is a game changer um, in various uh, areas of Central Asia. I mean, in terms of people's way to express themselves or mobilize support. Um, so that, I think that's that's something that uh, should be mentioned as, as a positive development. Yeah. At the same time, I find the, those uh, numbers quite problematic. So especially if we look at the penetration of the Internet or access to technology uh, numbers that are being tossed at us by various actors, various donors, I notice a huge um, difference in the numbers that are introduced by the state, by the World Bank, by United Nations is, you know, by other actors is the penetration rate of the Internet, 50 percent, 60, 75. Moreover, what is beneath this layer? What does access mean, right? Do you, do you merely have access to a few megabytes of the slow, expensive, and uh, censored internet? Or do you actually have access to the internet that can allow you to get education, to work, uh, to generate income, and and so on? Moreover, um, maybe Sivar can uh, comment on this. Recently, there was a shocking number that I stumbled upon about actual access to the internet among young girls, young women and girls in Uzbekistan, that upwards 60% of them have never used the internet, in fact. So when you say that the penetration is 75%, in fact, it's predominantly used by men, even yeah. in whatever form uh, that internet comes. I totally agree. I mean, I know m many women in, in rural areas, they don't even have a phone at all. I mean, they, they can't, but I mean, cross, I mean, if you compare central parts of Central Asia now with ten years ago, I think social media is is an important development, uh, also in terms of state society relations. So that's I think that's important to mention, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I totally agree with your points to to nuance it, and yeah, we need to delve into it deeper. Yes. Uh, if I can add as well that uh, about the trends in Central Asia, like for women and young people, that is basically I see as negative. I would say the race of gender-based violence, uh, which is happening still after, uh, like after effect of COVID uh, pandemic times, let's say it's still uh, like uh, the, the number of um, cases are growing and uh, especially in Kyrgyzstan as well, that like people get uh, go to the streets and protest. So like every third protest probably is like related to the case uh, or, or like uh, um femicide uh like against uh, women mm -hmm. and uh in, in and religious um religious radicalization i would say as well as a, like a, a big trend that's happening that uh, people basically 
getting more and more into religion and uh, in in many cases it gets like uh, wrong interpretations and uh, there are like uh, lots of cases where the uh, maybe it's also the dig- the access to digital services but you know they they there are many people that learn uh, for some kind of uh, radical studies like online and then they kind of get caught uh, by uh, by the policy in, in in Uzbekistan so it's also the trend that is unfortunately happening um, and I see like that for young people and for women it's just uh, getting like a very kind of uh, dangerous environment uh, and the law is still weak in in many cases like uh, the the gender-based violence is still like um, not uh, really punished Uh, and for young people I see that um, uh, for young women especially there are like lots of um, um, cases when uh, in the families especially in conservative and religious families they are not allowed to use mobile phones Mm -hmm. and it's not only in rural areas but also in the big cities already and um, uh, this is dangerous, I guess. Absolutely. Oh, Sivara, <laughs> I was actually about to jump in with this one. Thanks so much for bringing this up. This summer, I worked with students from all over Central Asia in Bishkek. And I was told this, these, these stories that a good bride or bride-to-be uh, must get rid of the phone mm. to be marketable. Yes. Because if you have a, a phone, a mobile phone, you are promiscuous and you know, you're not yeah. marriage material. I think the same trend is in Tajikistan that uh, once a, a young woman is to be married, then she has to get rid of her smartphone because what is a smartphone for unless you are in, engaging in some sort of conversations with other men or trying to promote yourself on social media through whatever photos or non-photos that you post. I think Savara and Irna touched a really important subject in Tajikistan and in Central Asia as a whole, is that gender-based violence has been on the rise and and this has been exacerbated by COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, But in general, I think it's a a shame that gender-based violence is not criminalized, at least in Tajikistan. It's only uh, defined in the law on prevention of domestic violence, but also very specific to domestic violence, not taking into account all forms of gender-based violence that can take place, including domestic violence. But from another perspective, I think there has been a a positive trend that we see and it's connected to digitalization is that a lot of these kind of movements uh, uh, for uh, equality, they often happen online and on social media and progressive uh, young um, Central Asians are taking upon social media to demand for change something that is definitely new and an opportunity that is provided only through social media activism and something probably not realistic uh, if it was an offline uh, offline uh, movement as such. Um, and, I, and I wanted to touch upon on the other uh, aspect of the, the situation of um, young people in Tajikistan. After the, the, the war uh, in Ukraine, uh, I saw uh, from uh, many, many friends and families of friends who, uh, who you know, prioritized Russian education as high, to a higher quality, and a lot of these families 
took their kids from Russian high schools because they didn't want a Russian diploma. Uh, and they didn't want, um, they thought perhaps this might damage their possibility of getting into an American or European university. And in general, that a Russian education might not be so favorable in this current political climate. Uh, and even if it was, let's say, senior year, like graduation year, the last year of studying, they still took their kids from school and put them into Tajik schools, which are generally considered a lower quality school. So this is some of the trends when we see in terms of education that affects young people as they're trying to look forward on how to plan in this uh, current political climate. I'd, I'd like to add a bit more on, on the women in the rural areas. And actually that also relates to gender-based violence, but in another way, uh, because we what we've seen is that as a result of COVID and well, the war in Ukraine, I mean, this is affects remittances, right? And the dominant rural labor force are women and many of them are actually informally um, employed. Um, so what happens then is with migrants return home is that it really um, increases the burden on women. I mean, to uh, to work in the fields to secure an income as well as just um, doing all the household chores because it's not often not the men who take over when they return home. It just means that women have way more to do. Um, so this, I mean, is in a way also, um, uh, well, gender-based violence, but, but in another way, actually. Um, and I think that's, um, yeah, that's really important to add as well. It's often thought that, I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it's um, women's, um, well, appearance in public life or their work in the fields, for instance, I mean, it, it has uh, both, both positive and negative implications, right? But when it comes to only securing income for the family, that, that, and that really means that it really uh, increases the burden. And aside, yeah. in, in spite of the fact that the, the rural is, is so important in Central Asia. In fact, the, the, the majority of people still live in the rural areas. What I notice is a grand disconnect between the, the rural, the capital centers, and um, and everyone else. And you know, you know, we've mentioned the role of digital media for online activism. There, I also see uh, this huge. It's not even polarization. It's people living in parallel realities. You have the Russophone active Twitter, for instance, in Kyrgyzstan. Um, it's the so-called Balkonsky, right? People living in inner city Bishkek. Uh, Balkonsky is this cultural reference to um, uh, Lev Tolstoy's um, characters, but also the fact that people live on, in apartments with a balcony. So Balkonsky, a Russophone, they're active, but uh, you know the rest of the country uh, is frustrated that they are isolated from realities. That what they demand is coming from the perspective of their own bubble, and that they have no idea of what it's like for people to live in the rural area and. Perhaps there is, some, there is, of course, some truth to that. And what I also notice online is that linguistically, you know, people are also trying to generate more income, more uh, content in the local languages. So there is the rediscovery of the significance of Kyrgyz language, Uzbek language for the ethnic minorities as well, right? Of course, for the so-called titular nations, so people who uh, have not had the opportunity to learn their own language, but also for ethnic minorities living in Central Asia who now want to learn uh, the local language as well. Well, I think it's also, I mean, touching as well on that and on what, what I think Sevara mentioned is that indeed there's this rural-urban divide or, or I mean, um, distance we could say, but it also uh, includes post-colonial discussions, right? Or post-colonial thought. 
what I noticed that is is in my impression quite um, led or lives among um, segments in, in rural areas. Uh, sorry, in urban areas. Sorry, that, let me say that again. Um, so these discussions on on post colonialism, uh, post colonialism that those live mainly um, in urban areas is my impression, much less in rural areas. So keeping in mind everything that we have said, what should be the turn then, if any, in, in approaches to studying Central Asia, given this uncertainty, this uh, transitional, in many ways, transitional period? To rethinking the, the yeah. approaches of studying Central Asia, of understanding, of gen generating new knowledge about Central Asia. Well, away from associating Central Asia only with authoritarianism, the Silk Road and conflict, um, there's much more to that because that that's often the way in which uh, people, um, those are the terms with which Central Asia is associated, um, but there's much more. Yeah, and I would say that probably uh, there is a need to support local researchers or maybe like to uh, kind of uh, to make the bigger number of local researchers, let's say not to produce them, but, you know, just um, to find to, to educate and uh, to um, to invest to their capacity, probably uh, for them to uh, being able to study like uh, internally, like uh, what is going on, because uh, in so many ways for uh, like since the independence, like we got our own experience experience like all countries in their own ways and I guess there is still lack of knowledge of like what is the modern uh, societies in Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan and in Tajikistan uh, and uh, we need this I guess and uh, then the support would be really kind of good uh, in terms of building this uh, so the, the potential of civil society as well and to see like how we can develop uh, the further dynamics of the politics of the economy and invest to the economic uh, boost, let's say, uh, what are directions, what are the strategies, uh, because uh, at the moment, I guess, like what we see in our governments, that there is a lack of uh, analysis uh, and uh, a lack of uh, the voices uh, from civil society, I would say. That's why just like a complete frustration um, in society and everybody just like questioning what is going on next. So that's why it would be great to have the, the big number of researchers or at least some points of view, you know, <laughs> to to listen, to see and just prognose like the future. But even in the, in the cases where the voices from civil society are present, we see the unfortunate turn towards authoritarianism and their suppression, yes. as is the current case in, in Kyrgyzstan, a country which is... Uh, has been known for its vivid and vibrant civil society in the region. Yes, and that's why it should be even uh, the the civil society should even uh, grow more because uh, otherwise, how to resist this? I think also, I mean, it, it's 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 um, local researchers should take the lead. The only difficulty is in in several parts of the region mm -hmm. is that there's no uh, that the ability to do research or write is, is really circumscribed. So, um, that, that's a major, really a major challenge at the moment. I mean, that, and that, of course, I mean, that affects people from outside and people from, from Central Asia, but it also means that, um, trying to increase the activities of, of people of, uh, 
young research from Central Asia, I mean, is is very complicated and even more um, if you do research in the region as as an as a as a non-native, so to say, or someone from not from Central Asia, you can you can you can easily leave or you can be deported in the in the worst worst case, right? But if you are from the region and you are getting in trouble, that's uh, that's really dangerous. Absolutely, there are so yes. many risks <laughs> affiliated. No, with that's so. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> a big challenge. But and also, yeah, and from the perspective of the general turn in, in Central Asian studies, unfortunately, what I observe here, uh, for instance, uh, across European institutions and even in, uh, elsewhere, is that we're constantly framed, again, with these colonial terms through our position to Russia, through our proximity to Russia, let's say, former Soviet stance, right, or uh, you know, Eurasia, greater Eurasia. It's it's rarely the case when Central Asia is paid attention to purely for what it is. And often you need to justify, why should we care? You know, again, I monitor the news quite a bit. And amid uh, the, the recent events, you know, starting with the January in, in uh, Kazakhstan, followed by August in Uzbekistan, followed by uh, September between uh, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, all these events have been framed in the context of proximity opposition towards uh, Russia and even the news covering these events have uh, have been framed which there were quite quite a scarcity of I should mention have been framed in a, in the context of what Putin has commented on Central Asia and and, and so on mm -hmm. well I think it, it's very unfortunate but but um, yeah can't generalize again but I think many people in, in in Europe they associate Central Asia with 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 the Soviet Union right or with the links to, to Russia and I think Rashid is really um, clear in that um, um, I mean in in media but also for instance in at universities and it was recently also uh, mentioned elsewhere is that Central Asia is often studied within departments of Central Eurasian studies and when you look at departments of for instance sociology or anthropology there's hardly anyone focusing on anything in the region and what I've noticed is that yeah you, it seems like you have to justify or explain why you study Central Asia and I, I've been wondering if sociologists or anthropologists working in other parts of the world ever get such questions like why does your <laughs> geographic uh, area or the, the, the area you focus on why what does it contribute right or why should we include it and yeah that's what I find striking um, um, and an issue that should be given more attention. It's definitely a lot of food for thought and definitely it's a topic that needs further discussion uh, and uh, I'm glad that we raised it during the first uh, uh, chat in the yurt and uh, unfortunately we don't have enough time to discuss all these topics but it was certainly a very interesting podcast and I think uh, my co-host Rashid agrees. Absolutely, uh, what a fantastic conversation. I don't want it to ever end. I want to continue sitting in the yurt. Well, in I mean, definitely we will continue these discussions and I hopefully will have uh, uh, more occasions to invite Ilna, Nusa and Sevara to sit in uh, more chats in the yurt. Well, for now, I can't thank you enough for taking time to participate uh, uh, from uh, Dushanbe, uh, the Netherlands, from uh, Bishkek uh, to our first chat in the yurt. 
thank you so much all uh, all of you for uh, for your participation it was great to have you virtually at least uh, with us today thank you so thank much you. for having us well, that was your uh, first monthly chat in the Yurt podcast treat on EU Central Asia developments. Stay tuned for more uh, updates and more uh, chats uh, in the future. Thank you very much. And send us your questions or topics for discussion via social media. Absolutely. Be part of it. Mm-hmm.